You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Welcome to this episode of the Business of Practice podcast, where we focus on the business and human sides of equine veterinary medicine. In this episode, we're going to talk to large animal emergency clinician, Dr. Megan Graves, about emergency-only practices and her recommendations for those in the equine industry considering this option for their careers. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Grice, business consultant and former equine practice owner. The Business of Practice podcast is brought to you in 2024 by Care Credit. Dr. Graves grew up riding hunter-jumper horses and showing Suffolk sheep in 4-H in Cookville, Tennessee. She holds a bachelor's in animal science and attended the University of Tennessee to earn her DVM. After her graduation in 2001, Dr. Graves went into equine practice, treating both ambulatory and hospital cases in coastal South Carolina, Georgia, and western Tennessee. In 2008, Dr. Graves opened her own private practice in western North Carolina, providing emergency relief services for seven large animal practices in the area. She was excited to join the field services team at the University of Tennessee College of Veterinary Medicine in the fall of 2013, and she's currently offering emergency relief services for large animal practitioners in the Knoxville area while teaching and mentoring veterinary students and interns. Welcome, Dr. Graves. Thank you. I'm honored to be invited. Well, we're so glad to have you here. You were such an early innovator in the field of large animal emergency medicine with the equine veterinary profession currently wrestling with the difficulty in providing emergency care. I'm really eager to learn more about your experiences, and I'm sure our listeners are as well. I'm happy to share some of those thoughts. That's great. Um, so when you started your emergency relief practice over 15 years ago, what were the motivating factors for doing it that way? Yeah, so I, I actually began doing emergency only even before starting that practice. In 2004, after having my first child, I began covering emergencies instead of daytime practice. I had previously worked for this practice full-time, so the practice owner knew me and so did the clients. So when my first son was born, um, the transition was pretty easy to covering the after-hours emergencies for this practice that very much had the monopoly on the equine veterinary market in that area. Um, the arrangement allowed me to stay home with my child during the day and still work in a progressive equine practice in the evenings and on weekends when my husband could be home with our son. It also afforded the other veterinarians in the practice the ability to greatly reduce their emergency coverage burden, and I was able to see just how much more productive they could be during the day if they were not asked to cover on-call as well. So fast forward to two kids and another one on the way, and we found ourselves moving from South Carolina to Western North Carolina for my husband's job. And after researching the area and discovering that no single practice seemed to dominate the equine coverage, as had been the case in South Carolina, 
I then assumed that no one practice would either have enough emergencies to keep me busy or be able to justify an emergency position like I had in South Carolina. And given that I didn't have an established relationship with any one practice, I knew that I could be viewed as a neutral party. So starting my own equine emergency practice seemed like the best solution. Um, I, I guess in a nutshell, to answer your question, like many of my life decisions, this one was motivated by my family and a desire to be home with my children as much as possible. And, you know, I love that that's what motivated you because we have such a demographic shift in equine veterinary practice. You know, so many of those that are joining our career are female. And when they when they come out of school, they're right at a biological time when babies are, you know, babies are us, right? Yeah. And, and I, so, I also think we're seeing a shift in a lot of the fathers wanting to have a more active role in their kids as well. And so not having to be on call as much, you know, gives them that opportunity too. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's just a real opportunity for people to perhaps they've been a little worried about taking a position that has um, emergency duty attached to it. But imagine if they were able to control that the way that you were able to control it. So you actually had lots of time with your kids while they were awake. Yeah, that's right. Because if I had stayed with that daytime position, I would have had two or three hours when I got home, mm -hmm. if that, before it was just the bedtime routine and, and things like that. And of course, I, I couldn't have done this without a supportive husband, you know, to help me through that. But, you know, together, um, it, it grew from not just taking care of them when they were young, but I actually ended up, we, we now have four children, four boys, and I was actually able to homeschool them as well and continue that time with them during the day. So I think it's important for people to know that it is possible, even in the equine profession, to be able to have time with your family. It just takes a little creativity and, and restructuring. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so the first couple of years that you were in that role, what are the most important things you learned? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, the business model is is really quite simple. I would distribute my availability to local practices and they would turn their phones over for me to cover emergencies. But the key to it being successful was the service that I provided to their clients. And I learned early on that even if someone just called with questions and I didn't actually go see the case, taking good care of their clients and then communicating effectively to the veterinarians about any follow-up care that might be needed, it grew my practice as well as theirs because people were more likely to call again on emergency if they had received good service. Uh, I, I also learned very quickly that payment at the time of services was the only way to truly predict actually being paid. Um, I had no way to look up if someone was a bad or slow pay, and it was best to just treat everyone equally anyway. So I always tried to collect payment at the time of service. Um, I did get burned a few times being manipulated and unfortunately kind of learned that lesson the hard way. Um I also learned to charge appropriately for my time. I mean, if you've ever had a plumber out on emergency, you know that they're comfortable for charging for their services, and, and we certainly should be too. 
I'm still working on this one uh, and clearly have room for improvement. Uh, and I, I recognize that when I hand someone their final bill and they are surprised at how inexpensive it is, especially if they're comparing it to small animal emergency. And so I, I think, I, you know, I'm still working on on learning that lesson, I guess, a little bit. Um I also learned to get better at saying no, mm. uh, but I found the best way to not disappoint people with that answer was to have very solid reasons for being able to not do certain things. So, you know, like the while you're here things, um, for instance, no, I can't pull your Coggins while I'm here on emergency because I'm not accredited or no, I can't do all your routine vaccines because those vaccines aren't on my truck since they're not emergencies. Um you know, yes, I have a speculum on my truck, but I don't have any dental floats. And so um, it's sort of like telling your child no and then offering a reason other than because I said so. Um, <laughs> you know, simply stating contact your regular veterinarian to schedule routine procedures sometimes wasn't as well, accept well accepted. Um, but usually being able to say something like perhaps you could follow up on this situation that we just saw tonight and then also schedule those other routine things. People were much more accepting of that no answer. Um, so I think those were probably some of the most significant lessons that I learned early on. Those are really wonderful lessons to learn early too, aren't they? Yes, very much so. The Business of Practice podcast is brought to you by Care Credit. Care Credit keeps equine veterinarians at the heart of care by providing horse owners with simple, budget-friendly financing options. By helping to bridge the gap between costs and care, Care Credit supports healthy financial relationships between veterinarians and their clients. Clients have a flexible way to pay over time for all types of care, and practices get paid in two business days. It's a payment experience everyone can feel good about. The other thing is, one of the questions that people often have is, how do you structure an emergency-only practice? Yeah, and I, I think there's a few ways to do that. Um, I, I think it's important because there's a couple key things that make this job compatible with life, in my experience, um, because you will basically be working when the rest of the free world is off, right? So um, you need to have some control of your schedule and being able to choose which weekends you have off is a must, in my opinion. Um, that way, you know, you can still attend a football game or a wedding or whatever it might be with friends or family without being interrupted on occasion. Um, I also think it's important to remember that working a weekend on-call shift is a long period of time. So 5 p.m. on Friday to 7 a.m. on Monday, I mean, that's more than 60 straight hours. And although you'll likely never be working that whole time, obviously, the, the being on-call feeling can still be really draining. And so I definitely suggest that people limit their availability on call to 15 to 20 days max per month and with no more than two to three weekends a month. And, and I, I think that's really critical to still guard some of that time and to remind people that covering a weekend is different than covering a weekday. Um, I do think it's super helpful if you can determine which days seem to be the busiest on emergency in your area and then target covering those days just from a profitability standpoint. I mean, when you're on, 
you you want to be busy. That that's the goal. Um, so you don't want to just pick the days that are you know not as busy. So to, trying to target a holiday or something like that that might be more um, active as far as you receiving calls, I think is crucial. Um, the startup's pretty easy. I mean. I basically would meet with veterinarians in the area, explain the business model, and then most of them were quite willing to jump on board for some relief. Uh, I set mine up where um, practices pay a small fee for coverage, and then all services are paid by the client directly to me, not their regular veterinary practice. Um, currently, in my role at the University of Tennessee, we're providing this as a service at no charge to area practitioners. Um, it's sort of a bonus for them as being great referring veterinarians. Um, it definitely seemed like a way that the university could help make equine practice more sustainable in our area. Um, and it, it has still been profitable, um, even without charging for that um, coverage free, but that's because um, I don't have to worry about being on salary. I don't have to worry about the seasonality when calls might be slower and things like that, because that certainly is the case that you have fewer emergency calls in the winter. You're much busier in the spring and the fall and things like that, um, that any equine practitioner would have experienced. Um, I have a I, question. Yeah. Um, so when you are making your schedule, how many veterinary practices uh, would you be signing up for a particular shift? Or are you only signing up one practice for a particular shift? So, you know, because it, and it would depend too on how many doctors that practice, how do people decide what's too much or what's not enough? Yeah, that's a great question. And so um, a, a lot of the practices in Western North Carolina were solo practices. And so you can take on multiple solo practices at a time. And then there were a few practices that had two doctors, three doctors, and then one bigger practice. And so I think um, you just kind of have to get a feel for it and see if if you can find out from those practices how many emergencies they see in a year, that's very helpful. But unfortunately, a, a lot of practices don't know. Um, they they could maybe track it by looking at emergency fees, but there are some practices that aren't consistent about that either. Um, and so without those numbers, you are taking a risk in the beginning um, of just seeing how busy can I be. And sometimes emergencies do come at the same time, but you just triage those just like you would anything else. And and most of the emergencies that I um, receive, they're more urgencies than emergencies. And so there's nothing that I have to be there in 20 minutes or this patient's not going to make it. That That's very uncommon. There are certain cases where the animal's in a much higher degree of distress than, you know, the foot abscess that can wait on me kind of thing. And so just being able to triage that in the beginning. Um, early on, I always had a veterinarian that was kind of on backup so that if I did have multiple things, um, I could go to that person. Um, I think in the last 10 years of being here at UT, I can count on one hand the number of times that I've need to kind of call for reinforcements because I just physically couldn't get to all the things at once. But that's really rare, um, depending on your call radius. And so I think restricting your call radius can help you as well. Um, 
There are some practices that I cover for that um, their call radius is is larger than mine. And so they communicate to clients that they would have to haul in to be able to be seen on emergency because I physically can't go that many miles because the distance would make it hard to get to the other side of the call radius. Um, So I don't know that there's a, a set number of practices that you can cover for, but like you're saying, targeting either multiple solo practices um, or, you know, keeping an eye on how many doctors there are in that practice does really dictate the number of emergencies that you'll see. That's really helpful information. Most definitely. I I also think another thing when you're setting up one of these practices is to to keep your overhead low. Um, there, There really isn't a lot of equipment that you need on emergency. And so I suggest being conservative and then even coming up with some creative ways to keep your overhead low. Um, sharing equipment is one way that you can do that. Um, I, I find that I rarely need an x-ray machine on emergency, but having access to one is essential. And so having an arrangement with maybe one of the practices that you cover for so that you can go by and utilize their unit um, is a great way to have an alternative to you buying a piece of equipment that you're not gonna need very often. You know, even medications, you know, whatever you dispense one night can often be replaced in one business day most of the time. And so keeping that overhead low to avoid something expiring or being wasted or whatever, I think is really important. Um, And then keeping in mind, you don't need a lot of equipment. A a lot of it is going to be, you know, your hands and a, a nasogastric tube kind of thing, you know, so being conservative is important. That's great advice as well, especially for somebody just starting out in a practice of this nature. You know, I remember back when I was in in practice, it was always so interesting. Some of my most memorable and interesting cases were, you know, emergencies. And they just enriched my my confidence and my clinical experience. And I just you know, really think back on on some of the wonderful experiences, especially learning experiences that I had. But some people, some veterinarians, you know, I think because they haven't had that experience, are they feel anxious. And some of them actually are anxious for the entire time in their career um, when they're on emergency duty. And so what advice would you give, especially to early career veterinarians to get past this? Yeah, I'm like you. They are by far my favorite calls and they're very, they're usually very rewarding, but, um, you know, early on, that does give you some pause. And I, I have veterinary students that will express that same apprehension to me as well. And I, I think it's important to remind early career veterinarians that what even the most common emergencies are. I mean, they're basically colics, lacerations, eyes, chokes, you know, things that they are completely prepared to handle. And so if recent graduates um, could practice passing nasogastric tubes and suturing skin and and get to a point where they feel proficient with that, um, I think that would boost their confidence. Um, I also feel like Having a lifeline to a mentor or a previous clinician in veterinary school is a great idea. It's always nice just to bounce ideas or thoughts off on somebody and be affirmed that you're on the right track. And, And I'm always happy to be that lifeline for somebody. I love when 
former students will call and they'll say, oh my goodness, Dr. Graves, I'm on my way to see this. This is what I'm thinking. And, and all I need to do is tell them, that's awesome. That sounds perfect. You're thinking exactly what I'm thinking. And then maybe add in something like, so don't forget to look for this and, and things like that. And um, just encouraging him that. I, I also suggest that you start every emergency with a good physical exam and always do that exam the same way so that you don't get tunnel visioned onto something that's insignificant. And then just pick up on those abnormalities on your physical exam as the first step of putting the clues together to solve the puzzle and taking things one step at a time keeps us from getting overwhelmed and it allows us to make informed decisions for that patient. Um, and we might see some zebras every now and then and some things that would give any seasoned veterinarian anxiety. But for the most part, the common things are common. And I try to rem remind those um, early career veterinarians that they know more than they give themselves credit for. And to just cut themselves some slack every now and then, because honestly, for most horse owners, just showing up for the emergency is a win. The fact that you are physically there for them is a total win. And to just give themselves some credit, um, I, I think we we live in that imposter syndrome, especially early on, that we don't know things. And in fact, we really do have a lot of that knowledge and a lot of those skills. We just need to keep practice using them. Um, yeah, and to, to not be intimidated by that. Yeah, I think your advice of remembering how much you do know and that remembering that you have four years of full-time schooling more than the owner of the horse. Like you have so you have so much to offer. Exactly. So much to exactly. offer. And and it is absolutely okay to say, you know, I'm gonna go out to my truck for a minute to uh get something, do whatever, and make that phone call or, you, or you're returning a phone call, whatever it is that you say, and you can pull out the book from underneath your, your, uh, the seat of your truck. There's still books in my door. Up, right? you know, even doing this for 20 years, there's still books in the door of my truck that I love mm -hmm. to flip to and, and look into for guidance or, you know, just to. I, I think we have books, ebooks now. Yes. I think we're showing our age, but. You know, well, like I try to tell myself yeah. where I practice, I might not have cell service. So having there, the textbook is still valuable. There you go. There you go. I hear it. Can you think of anything else that would be really helpful and important for our listeners to, to know about an emergency only practice? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think like you mentioned, Dr. Grace, the, the emergencies being so rewarding. Um, mm -hmm. I, I love that I'm not the teeth and sheaths veterinarian, you know, like I, I get to do all the fun stuff. But, you know, even more than the fact that emergencies are hands down the coolest part, um, you, you know, you are coming to these owners during some of their greatest times of need. And you're a superhero with a rectal sleeve. I mean, what gets cooler than that? And so I think um, that rewarding feeling of helping those horse owners is just as important because you're not just helping the horse, you're helping their human too. And, and that feeling goes a long way. And then when you add to that, when you're in an emergency practice where you're covering for other veterinarians, you're also improving their quality of life. And that is super gratifying as well. 
Like I love to hear when veterinarians that I'm covering for, they get to go to their kid's soccer game or on vacation and, and I'll take care of their clients during that time. That makes this role really, really satisfying. And so I would just encourage anybody that was considering this practice model to sort of take a chance on it and prepare to be surprised. I certainly saw this as a short-term thing when my kids were young and never knew I would love it this much. Um, because even now with my kids going off to college, I cannot see myself doing anything different. Um, even when I'm going to be an empty nester in a few more years, uh, it's still what I want to do because it is that satisfying from multiple multiple different avenues, the, the horse, the horse owner, and these other veterinarians. You know, we are a helping profession and that helping can be very broad, just as you've just brought up. And, you know, it really brings it home to me to think about how sometimes I would be feeling really kind of crabby as I got into my truck, having been woken up and I'm cold and I'm like, rah, 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 and I'm whining. And then what a huge, huge difference as I would pull my truck back into the driveway hours later and feel so glad that I had been there for the people and for the horse. And I, you know, such a feeling of, of helping and making a positive difference in so many ways. And, and so when you can make a positive difference for other veterinarians, as well as the horses and the clients, it is a very good feeling, just as you, as you're saying, it's, it's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful way to feel like you're making a positive difference in the world. Um, that really brings joy. And yeah. That's one of the things in life blessed. that's so yeah. important. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, I do. I feel extremely blessed. And I love when, you know, people are very quick to say, oh my goodness, I'm so glad you're on call tonight. You know, I can do this or I can do that. Um, it, it does give you that feeling of, you know, just that that you're valuable to somebody and and not just to the horse, but to another human being. Um, and and then at the same time, to not feel like I missed those important moments with my children. You know, so I, I definitely feel like I I had my cake and I got to eat it too, kind of thing. And and certainly there are things that I did miss out on. You know, there I might only made it to half a soccer game on a Saturday because I got called away on an emergency. Um, you know, those things are gonna happen, but given the number of hours um, in the day, I couldn't be more happy with that balance that it brought for my family and my career. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Graves, for joining us today. It's uh, It's been a wonderful conversation. And thank, thank you for you having all. me. Yes. And thank you all who have been listening today to the Business of Practice podcast. And also a really big thank you to our sponsor, Care Credit. Without you, we couldn't be doing this. And to all my listeners out there, be brave, embrace change, 